0: Chapman University professor Luke Nickter is the author of the book, The Year That Broke Politics. It's about collusion and chaos in the presidential election of 1968. Professor Nichter is also the creator of nixontapes.org, the only website dedicated solely to the scholarly production and dissemination of the digitized Nixon tape collection in existence. More than 3,000 hours. Nichter's book focuses on the 1968 presidential race and the contentious battle between Vice President Hubert Humphrey, Richard Nixon, and George Wallace. Professor Luke Nichter of Chapman University, Doug Brinkley, in his book Silent Spring Revolution, says in the back, in the acknowledgments, thanking you, that you know more about Nixon than anybody alive. When you uh, hear that, uh, what's your reaction?
1: Uh, well, gratitude, uh, perhaps a bit of hyperbole from a best selling author. Um, but uh, I, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about Nixon. I'm not sure I understand him or any other complex figure from U.S. history. Uh, but, but I do think um, I, I've come to have some understanding of that time period uh, after a lot of years.
0: When did it start for you?
1: uh no, the, no there's no was no big bang at the beginning of this journey uh for me it was a i, I grew up in kind of a northwest ohio and it was uh i was a student in need of a thesis topic in grad school and, and you know it takes 30 40 50 years for records to become declassified and if you rewind the clock from that time period 2004 5 6 it kind of puts you right in the lbj nixon period which was 30, 40, 50 years old to everybody else, but brand new to historians.
0: Your nixontapes.org website says that you have over 3,000 hours of, uh, of conversations, but then at some point I see that there are 37 hours, 3,700 hours altogether. How, what has not been released?
1: That number surprisingly has changed. over. It's, the initial estimate was 5,000. Uh, and I think it was a time the National Archives really didn't know how many they were. They could tell you how many physical reels there were, and they knew the maximum capacity for each reel, but they didn't know how much stuff was on each reel. So that number has kind of gradually been whittled down as they're still digitizing these tapes. But today, I would estimate around 500 hours... Uh, more than Kennedy recorded in his entirety and almost as much as Johnson recorded in his entirety has never been released from Nixon. And some of its national security classified privacy rights of people who didn't know they were being recorded. Uh, it's kind of an overlapping web of restrictions.
0: Who controls that system right now of releasing more of those Conversation.
1: Technically, it's the National Archives that's in the access business. Uh, And but, but, you know, they have statutes, executive orders that they have to follow. Uh, Because the problem with with a tape is you could have 60 minutes of the president discussing issues that are restricted by grand jury and statutes and national security. It's kind of woven together, you know, in a conversation. So it's it's particularly complicated to get
0: these materials fully released. You've done two large volumes on the tapes and the transcripts. How did you do that?
1: Uh, and, and not, not easily. Uh, and uh, I think the first one was 758 pages, and the second one was 829, and I felt the pain of every page. What I tried to do, because these are still a sample, I mean, we're kind of taking the, the sort of gra- a greatest hits approach, kind of the best to the best, And what I tried to do, because I had to have a methodology ultimately that could guide me, but also one that I could defend in the the way that we created the selection. And what we focused on was sort of the issues that that Nixon himself spent the most amount of time on. You can see that by looking at his schedule, the the meetings that he has, the people that he's talking to. So that was at the time, primarily China, the Soviet Union, uh, the trips that he makes to both in 1972, uh, Vietnam War, And, of course, lots of other political conversations, the 72 election, a little bit of domestic policy and economic policy. And so that's kind of our our sample that that we tried to offer readers.
0: If someone wants to listen to these tapes through your system, where do they go?
1: So you mentioned nixontapes.org is a site that I started, and they're all up there, kind of MP3s. Uh, I get contacted by a lot of researchers, film producers who need higher quality audio. But ultimately, uh, you know, I, they're still not all online and obviously not released. Uh, the Nixon Library is complete, and the National Archives is completing what they call the, a digital master, kind of the first true digital copy of these. Uh, and, and that also is going up at nixonlibrary.gov.
0: So what have you learned about Richard Nixon from listening to all these tapes and transcribing them?
1: Well, I think the first thing I would say is it's not static. Uh, I mean, I'm lucky that somebody pays me to learn and have fun every day and share this new knowledge with students and and readers. I I think that my bottom line is, is, of course, this is. 50 years later, and, and uh, I, I wasn't born until the late 1970s, so I, I have a bit more professional distance. I wasn't on college campuses during Vietnam. Uh, it was really my parents' age who were who were drafted and went to Vietnam. I think first and foremost is, I, I, you know, while there are moments in Nixon's career that you can clearly say he, he was a, a, a kind of dogged partisan, on the whole, I consistently find that, that he really occupied the kind of center lane in the Republican Party. And I don't see him, at least in, in records, as being the kind of figure that Herblock, the cartoonist, showed kind of crawling out of the sewer every four years to campaign for something. I think he kind of situated himself, certainly in 1968, as kind of, you know, you know more centrist than sort of, he had Romney and Rockefeller on his left. Uh, In that race, he had Reagan on his right and certainly Wallace to the right of that. I think Nixon, during those years, really tried to operate as a centrist.
0: In your book that we're going to talk about uh, in the back, you say being a historian is a morbid profession. Why? Why?
1: So what historians are supposed to do, you know, we're, the image of us, we're, it, it's not like Indiana Jones. You know, we're, we're sitting in an archive and we're assembling evidence. It's like pieces of a puzzle, except you can't cheat and look at the image on the box of the puzzle and see if you're on the right track. And also, you never get all the pieces before you have to make a decision. The information is always incomplete. And that information is usually left behind after people are deceased. Uh, FOIA requests, I put in a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests, and most of our privacy rights, not all, believe it or not, are waived once we die. And so I think the history is often written, here it is 55 years later, after 1968, Uh, usually after after everybody's gone, that's the, the necessary hurdle to get over for the bulk of the
0: records to be released. What can you tell us about the Freedom of Information Act and attempts by you to find information through that act?
1: Well, first and foremost, um, uh, it does not work as Lyndon Johnson uh, intended it to uh, in 1966 when that law was passed. Nowadays, as, as a writer, if you don't put in those requests very early in your research process, really before you even know the right questions to ask, or which records to ask for. You've got no hope of ever getting those records back by the time you finish. I might take five years to work on a book. A journalist writing on a deadline has almost no hope of using the FOIA the way that it was intended, yet it still serves a purpose. And there are calls of overhauling it and and, and maybe that will come to pass. Uh, But FOIA is is an important, uh, I think, a tool that all of our uh, all of us as stakeholders in our democratic system have to hold public officials accountable.
0: Your Wikipedia site has it says at the top that you went after Gordon Liddy's information through a 2009 uh, uh, lawsuit. What was that about? How did that work out and what did you get from it?
1: I can only imagine what's on Wikipedia about me. I, I can't admit to writing that. I don't know who did that entry.
0: There's not um, actually, there's not much about you on Wikipedia. I think you need to find somebody to beef it up. But anyway, that's the lead.
1: Maybe maybe that's better. And maybe that was the era that uh, that, that entry was, was written originally. Uh, I, I like to use the term court petition because it's, it's a friendlier term than lawsuit. And that was the legal vehicle that I used. It was really a matter of writing to a judge, uh, Judge Royce Lambert, who was the chief judge of the D.C. District Court right there in Pennsylvania Avenue, the exact same position that Judge John J. Sirica was during Watergate, chief judge of the D.C. District Court. And I wrote him just saying, uh, basically raising a simple question, uh, and, and, but, I, you know, I, I'm sort of the... Uh, was at the time a history professor who sort of just fell off the turnip truck in Texas and certainly didn't didn't know you shouldn't be writing judges, but I asked a question. I said, "Were you aware that so many records you know having to do with Watergate are still closed for various reasons? yet you know, see it's the most important scandal Well, historians maybe will not not call it in the future the most important scandal anymore uh with hindsight of more recent years. But that was the main point is it's the most important scandal the still the only one that resulted in the resignation of a sitting president yet all this stuff's closed you know what what can we do about that and he was willing to entertain my sort of fumbling through procedure and this petition and court filings and ultimately we, we got some records opened up what'd you
0: learn about gordon liddy
1: well, Liddy, of course, is just one of the named defendants. It's sort of, a, he always gets truncated, but of course it's, it's, Gordon, it's G. Gordon Liddy et al. Uh, and I think what we learned, it, it, what I learned from that case is Watergate is maybe not what it seems. You know, there's a whole literature out there of people that, that maybe should be termed conspiracy theorists. But what I learned is that it, it may not be, and I think that's a lesson of this book on 68, that politics isn't always what it seems. And it's not always, I think, what we've been told it is. For those of us, at least for me, you know, I view it sitting from the cheap seats, you know, looking at the actors on a stage. And in, in, in those records that were opened, uh, for example, um, you know, I mean, I, I still struggle with why is so much still sealed? The wiretapper Al Baldwin, who was listening to conversations at the DNC from the Howard Johnson across the street from the the DNC offices of the Watergate, I, there's a, still a tremendous amount being or that's restricted. And I, I again, I think to to a riff on that question that I asked Judge Lambert is why, you know, if it's if, if we know everything there is to know about President Nixon. and and the the actions and conjure secretly reported conversations that led to his resignation, then then why is still so much closed? I mean, who is being served by that continued closure?
0: Also, in in the acknowledgments in the back, you say so much of what passes for history today is not based on rigorous research. Why do you say that?
1: That that doesn't make me popular at academic conferences uh, to say that. But I think, um, I think look, it, certainly, you know, your, your audience here are, are people who read political books. And you see so much of history, a lot of the same stories get repeated over and over again. And very few people go back and, and actually check the sources. Uh, and, and I think sometimes when you do, you, tri- you know, to the earliest works and the first footnotes, sometimes that evidence vanishes like a mirage in a desert. And I think it's important to go back and check the sources, even in cases where we thought we knew all there was to know.
0: That leads me then to one of the main thrusts of your book. I'm gonna play some audio from an interview that I did with Jack Farrell, full name John Farrell, on uh, about 2017, because you write about it, especially back in uh, in the notes. And this is Jack Farrell talking about an incident with Anna Chennault. Let's run it and get your reaction. Haldeman writes down, um, in the midst of the uh, October 1968, we're going to monkey wrench Lyndon Johnson's peace initiative. Now, this is something that had always been rumored and bits of pieces had come out over the years, but Nixon denied it at the time to Lyndon Johnson and he denied it to David Frost and he denied it to his biographers. Always said that he had never played any role in doing this. But, in fact, he had used um, a go-between, um, a campaign aide named Anna Chenault, and had her communicate to the South Vietnamese that they would get a better deal if they held back from the peace process, and he got elected. And they did, he got elected, and uh, the war went on. What's your quarrel with that?
1: well it's uh i would say not a quarrel. uh you know that's a story that's been on the public record in some shape or form since early january of 1969 i think my reaction to that would be um one um john farrell doesn't say that in the book uh he said uh, he you know he, he wrote a political essay and gave a bunch of interviews where that became his interpretation but those words are not not only not in his book but I, look, I, as a historian who believes in the power of sources, I, I, I will say a line that I just put on repeat over the years. You don't have to believe me. Go check the source for yourself. And if you look at those four pages of notes, which I reproduce you know, in the appendix of this book, um, what he's saying those notes say, that's not in those notes. Those words are not in, Nixon's not saying monkey wrench the peace initiative. Um, and I think if you, if he had interviewed Anna Chennault, uh, if he had interviewed the South Vietnamese, if he'd interviewed the American officials who were still alive, he, they were more alive then than when I did my book and talked to all these people, the people who were in the peace talks delegation in Paris. Um, this is—they all agree that this is not correct. That's not a correct interpretation. I think what happened, and is that after 2016 the election when when Donald Trump won and within a short period of time the allegations of that Trump might have colluded with a foreign country Russia to win an election uh, these notes became a vehicle to see how perhaps that had done been done before in 1968 between Nixon using Chennault and South Vietnam Uh, and so I think people who have cherry-picked those notes these Haldeman notes with Nixon, I believe are not interested in Haldeman or Nixon or South Vietnam. They did this at the time they did it because they're interested in Trump and Russia. And I think that's why now uh, I think there's a lot of silence. I, I've tried to offer, as I do these and much of the book, kind of a fresh perspective. But I think the first step in doing that is is look at the notes for yourself, and you can see how these words over here and these words over here, and there's about four phrases that are sort of put together from these four pages, and that has become what we just heard there.
0: Any evidence? I know it's excuse me hard for people because it's so long ago. During that the whole time period where there was. The Paris peace talks that they wanted to start, the South Vietnamese versus—and you've got all the language in there. The NLF, the GVN, the RVN, the DRV, it's hard to keep track of all of them. But did Anna Chenault play any role from what you've seen in trying to stop the South Vietnamese from starting peace talks in Paris?
1: I would say I cannot prove a negative, which is always difficult to do. I cannot prove that Nixon didn't do anything, that Anna Chenault wasn't doing anything herself. Clearly, she was in regular communication. She had a shipping business with government contracts to Vietnam. She was in regular touch with political and military leaders, not just in South Vietnam, but throughout Southeast Asia. She was in, already communicating with them regularly and encouraging them not to take part in the peace talks. That's, I, I, that's absolutely true. But at, the point, at that point, South Vietnam wasn't even included in the peace talks. Uh, they weren't even a partner until after the 68 election. And, I, and as I show in the book, I think South Vietnam had made up its mind long before uh, not to take part in any peace talks. Which by the way, though you know, John Negroponte and others who were still around, who were part of the peace talks delegation in Paris said, these weren't even peace talks. Our, our, we didn't even have an assignment to get peace in Vietnam. First of all, North Vietnam had no intention of peace. South Vietnam didn't want to stop fighting. The only people who wanted out were the Americans. We call them peace talks because we want to feel better about ourselves. And what we're talking about is a unilateral withdrawal of American troops. And if they keep fighting, so be it. You know, it wasn't peace talks at all. Uh, And Negroponte and others have said our job was just to to keep talking, just to create a forum for conversation and keep that going. But we didn't have a clear objective. And ultimately, the only thing they really negotiated was another bombing halt uh, that came just before the election.
0: Before we go on to the book, I want to make sure the listeners know that you worked at this network back in... 12 years ago, starting up uh, the American History Television. And after that, you were, how long were you here? Oh. About a year?
1: Well, I think officially I started in 2010, and then we launched, and I'm very proud of that, 41 million homes at the beginning of 2011. Uh, and then uh, 18 months was that effort. We got it going. It's still going today and it's uh, it's one of my proudest achievements
0: what did you do when you left here
1: i went back to the uh, the academic world uh where i came from Uh, so i went back to the classroom and uh, turned out some of these books including the the part it was it was the year after that that i started talking to doug brinkley about hey you know maybe we should get together sometime and talk about a book uh on the nixon tapes so i really went back to kind of writing and teaching and, and researching where were
0: you what school?
1: Uh, at the time, on the faculty of Texas A and M, uh, and I was there for uh, uh, until 2021 uh, when I came here to
0: Chapman. And what, tell us about Chapman.
1: So Chapman is in Orange County, Southern California. It's in the city of Orange, right in the middle of Orange County. Uh, if you ask my daughter about Chapman, she's nine and a half. The best part is you can sort of hear when the wind blows the right way the Disney fireworks from Orange, we are kind of right next to Anaheim. Private, you know, research university. Uh, I'm even closer now to the Nixon Library than in Texas I was to the LBJ Library. So th- these are the two that I visit most often for research. And what do you teach? I teach this stuff uh, 20th century U.S. political history. I taught a course in the spring on the age of Richard Nixon. Uh, I taught a course called White House Tapes from FDR to Nixon, looking at the the entire from 1940 with the first ones by F- FDR was the one that got it started. And they all taped after that, even though, you know, when we learned about Nixon's, we assumed he was unique and that he'd done this. And it turns out others did it, too. And so, you know, as say, I say, so, I, I'm just having fun. And I get to share that uh, with students and,
0: and with readers. Why did you s- decide to do a book on the 1968 uh, campaign?
1: Well, I think there's a there's a number of clues. Uh, it, one is in the appendix. You know, I felt like uh, the Chanel affair had really not been researched by someone who went and talked to everybody. And I have no training to do interviews. I'm not particularly good at it. Uh, I think a second thing is uh, late uh, December 2017. I had a meeting with uh, Walter Mondale at, at his law firm in Minneapolis, and at the time I was doing a, a different book, a biography of Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. And uh, I was talking to Mondale because I just he was just he he was very friendly and wanted to talk about the 1960s He liked Lodge said nice things about Lodge at the beginning of the meeting And then we segue to 68 and maybe I realized that's when I should be, you know Working on this instead and ultimately did and he said something which changed how I thought about 68 He said if you want to know what I think I'll tell you He said Lyndon Johnson absolutely did not want Hubert Humphrey to win and he said it twice And I said, well, what do you mean? Do you think Johnson wanted Nixon to win? And he sort of looked across this long law firm, this conference room, and then he kind of looked back at me and said, maybe, you know, maybe. And I felt I was sort of being challenged when I got done with the Lodge book to start looking into 68. And so that's what I did.
0: What did you uh, learn about Hubert Humphrey?
1: I think Hubert Humphrey in history is much more than just an also-ran. You know, I think m- m- uh, Americans can often name the victor of a, a campaign, an election, maybe, you know, the runner-up. And then the series of kind of also-rans are easily forgotten. I think Humphrey is, is someone who is I- incredibly decent, perhaps too decent for politics. Uh, ultimately, uh, it, a lot of the Johnson people told me that, that Johnson, uh, Johnson believed to be president, you had to have a killer instinct were the words they used. And he Johnson didn't think that Humphrey had a killer instinct. I wonder, personally, whether Humphrey's best chance at the presidency might have been 1960, at a time when there wasn't a Vietnam War, the country wasn't divided the same way. He could have focused on his bread and butter issues of domestic policy. Uh, and and it, had he not gone to defeat in 60, largely, say, West Virginia primary against the Kennedy machine, you know, I wonder if that was his best window to reach the presidency, because I think he could have gotten there.
0: What did you notice about how Lyndon Johnson treated Hubert Humphrey when he was his vice president?
1: I think, I think this is a fascinating. I think really this is history that hasn't been written yet, although some have suggested it. I mean, you go from 64, when Johnson is very proud to have Humphrey on the ticket, Johnson in the civil rights era needs that outreach to the liberal side of the party. Yet by 68, they're barely on speaking terms. So what in the world happens, you know, in these four years? I mean, in in a way, it's unfair to the reader because I'm only showing them the very end of the story in this book. Uh, but I think, ultimately, what you see is Johnson withdraws from the race in, on March 31st on television. He will not run again. It comes as a dramatic, almost postscript to a speech, otherwise unrelated, responding to the Tet Offensive. And I think what you see is most books, at that point, uh, count, consider Johnson a lame duck. The spotlight turns to the challengers. Johnson's not important to most biographers and historians. I found a very different story in this book. I really restore Johnson to the central place that I believe he played throughout that year. He simply shifted from the ballot to his own political legacy. And probably my most controversial argument in the book is that I believe after talking to everyone around, about 85 people from all four sides, going through tapes and records, new evidence like Billy Graham's diary, that Johnson ultimately came to prefer Nixon as his own successor. Doesn't mean they liked each other necessarily personally, but I think Johnson came to believe that having Nixon as a successor uh, would be better for his own personal legacy.
0: A number of years ago we ran some audio on our radio station that was made by Hubert Humphrey when he prepared his his book. And what I remember from that audio is that Hubert Humphrey said among a lot of things that LBJ would not allow him to fly a jet aircraft in this country doing his job as VP. The only time he could fly on an American government jet aircraft was going overseas. And that the second story was that he once had a group of Minneapolis reporters that he wanted to take out on the presidential yacht Sequoia. Once he had scheduled it, Johnson found out about it and canceled it, and he found himself having to go find somebody's yacht so that he could take these reporters out. I bring that up only to get your reaction to that. Did you find more examples of how LBJ treated Hubert Humphrey like that?
1: I have heard those stories. I've also heard that he wasn't allowed to use Camp David. Uh, I was heard. I've heard that uh, from Humphrey staffers that the routine practice uh, of the vice president's office of kind of hiding staffers on different departments' payrolls because the vice president doesn't have a very big budget, independent of the White House. uh, He wasn't allowed to do that. I think possibly as poorly as Johnson was treated at times uh, as vice president himself uh, by the Kennedy White House, I think Humphrey might have had it even worse. And that's why I paid so much attention to Mondale's, what he said about the election in 68, because I I had known that Humphrey, Senator Mondale, as he was in 68, was in Humphrey's old Senate seat. I knew he co-chaired his campaign in 68, although sometimes that's more of a ceremonial duty than substantive. But I think Humphrey ultimately greatly influenced Mondale when he went on the ticket with Carter in 76, became vice president, helped him to negotiate a better job. Basically, he said, Humphrey and I became very close in the the 1970s. And he taught me a lot. And I think one of the things he's taught Mondale and probably all vice presidents uh, since is get an MOU or some kind of an understanding with the president. Otherwise, it's going to be you're not going to have a lot to do.
0: Here's some audio, it's an LBJ conversation with Hubert Humphrey, August 29, 1968, right before the election, and he's telling him what to look for in a vice president.
2: The one thing I do is look at what I got as vice president and see where you're gonna get it. Yeah. Now, I just can't improve on that. That's not sentiment, that's not emotion, that's just true. You want lots of energy and go, go. You want lots of articulateness. You want a guy that when the boss doesn't know whether he can come or not, that he'll tear up his speech and laugh and thank him for coming. You want a guy that's got to go down in the swamps and the boss can't go, that he'll love to do it and be happy, even though it just cuts his toenails off. I'll have to say this about you. I guess you're always willing to be president, but I never saw any evidence of it. Until I told you that I could be. now that's that's what you want.
0: Your reaction.
1: I, I struggle so this is a Johnson White House tape. Um, Johnson knew he was being recorded, so he's turning it on and turning it off when it suits his interest, or at least my my reading of that. Um, So I think that's the first thing, the kind of grain of salt that you take these tapes with. These weren't sound activated like Nixon's, these were manually operated. But my specific reaction is besides that, uh, Johnson did not think that Humphrey had made a good choice in choosing Senator Muskie of Maine to balance that ticket. He, He didn't balance the ticket very well. He didn't really help Humphrey in the parts of the country where Humphrey really needed help. I think choosing someone like outgoing Texas Governor John Connolly would have potentially denied Nixon a victory. That could have divided the conservative vote. Johnson liked the choice of Agnew. Many people criticized the choice of Maryland Governor Spiro Agnew going on the ticket with Nixon at the time. Um, But what Johnson's saying, I think, is why Nixon saw the choice of Agnew as a positive. First of all, the Vice President running mate doesn't usually add a lot to a ticket. It can subtract But you want someone loyal, you want someone who doesn't steal the spotlight, Henry Cabot Lodge did in 60. A lot of people came out to see Lodge. He sort of competed with Nixon on messaging and for press attention. And so I think it's why I think Johnson ultimately thought the choice of Agnew was was a shrewd move, didn't like Muskie so much. Uh, But I think it also reveals something about what Johnson might have thought about Humphrey uh, at the same time. I think Humphrey was too eager to, to speak for Johnson, to speak for the administration. And even though I, I, I don't think, I think Humphrey was totally loyal, the accusations of disloyalty, I don't think that was ever intentional uh, by anything Hubert Humphrey ever did. And so it's to this day, looking even 2024, it's a complicated choice to choosing running mate. Uh, political balance, geographic balance, uh, but at the same time, the, the person at the top of the ticket doesn't want to share that spotlight very
0: often. Do you have any thoughts about the fact that with all of our intelligence groups in this country and all the investigations that are done politically and the uh, opposition research, why is it that nobody knew that Spiro Agnew took money when he was a Montgomery County executive, when he was the governor of the state, from developers and then took money, cash money, over the transom when he was in the, the White House. Why no, Why did no one know that? It's a good
1: question. Uh, you know, I, I'm not aware that to, to be president, you need a background check. Um, you would think that would be obvious. I mean, anyone, you know, working as a GS-9 in any federal agency certainly goes through plenty of background checks. But I think that's at its core, you know, uh, uh, high candidates for high political office uh, you know, I, I mean, you, you have the potential uh, in 2024. Um, I think Trump is going to be the nominee. But I mean, Eugene Debs ran from prison in 1916 and got a million votes at a time when the population of the country was a whole lot smaller. So we don't have those kind of criteria, ironically, for somebody at the top. But I think a second thing I would say is some people who specialize in Maryland politics would say, well, that's Maryland politics. And there's certain regions of the country, Boston's another one. I remember Chuck Colson always said, you know, Nixon and I got along so well because, you know, we we came from the same school of kind of nehem and in the growing politics is exactly what he said to me. Uh, so I think certain parts of the country politics is a little bit more in you know, a rough and tumble.
0: What did you think? Because you write about it. What did you think of the Haldeman diaries? The Haldeman
1: diaries. I think are pretty good as a historical source Uh, but at the same time I as I say in the appendix of the book you know we you've got to understand what they are I mean they're they're not I I would say they're not so especially the Haldeman notes I mean they're part diary but they're not really a traditional diary I mean sometimes they're sort of a running to-do list and when you look at a a day you know an entry for a day they're usually written but some of them are, are also were also dictated for a period you know, sometimes he captures what he he doesn't often attribute things, so you don't know what he's saying. Was that what Nixon said? Is that what Haldeman said during a meeting? Is that what someone else said? Is it an idea that occurred to Haldeman during an unrelated meeting? And so, there it's a great record. I find very little political bias in it. It's it's often self-critical even. So I think it's a pretty reliable source. At the same time, like any single piece of evidence, because we have so much for Nixon memos, lots of tapes and other sources, you can't rely on it completely. You still have to sort of triangulate it, you know, with other kinds of evidence.
0: So go back to the sixty eight campaign. We had George Wallace, Hubert Humphrey, LBJ, Richard Nixon. Tell us what you found as you were beginning to sort through that uh that, that race.
1: Well I you know I, I think I have a, a different take on, on, on a lot of these figures. So Johnson was much more involved. Uh, I think Humphrey had the impossible task uh, of running uh, while being vice president. And, And you know, I say to my students, I spend a lot of time around 18, 19, 20 year olds in the classroom. Anytime you have a race where you have a current vice president running or someone who's very close to the outgoing president. And by that, I mean, Hillary Clinton had a bit of that in 2016, having been a prominent member of Secretary of State of President Obama's cabinet. You have almost the impossible task Uh, of sort of arguing that, you know, everything we did for four or eight years is is great, perfect. Yet somehow you still have more ideas. You have things that are unfinished because then the cynic says, if it's so great, why didn't you do it already? Uh, And so I think we saw this with, with, I remember Al Gore in 2000 with Clinton. There were parts of the country where deploying the outgoing President Bill Clinton was clearly an asset. And there are other times when you don't want to do that. That doesn't really help you. And so I think this is always the challenge. And I think it's why we never really saw a Humphrey campaign operating on all cylinders, because it's difficult to organize around meaningful campaign themes at at that point. And I think finally, I I would say, you know, I cover kind of Nixon as a centrist. Uh, I think Wallace, in a way, is the most interesting part of the campaign. I think probably all populists since then on both sides of the aisle probably more recently the republican side of the aisle because of trump have borrowed from the wallace playbook in terms of that anti-elite anti-establishment you know the phrase drain the swamp as far as i know never occurred to george wallace but if it had he probably would have used it Uh, and so i think all populists since then have borrowed from the wallace playbook he got on the ballot in all 50 states which is a very difficult thing to do to navigate 50 sets of state laws, fend off 50 states of political and legal challenges by Democrats and Republicans. And as I look to next year, 2024, all the talk of third candidates, no labels candidates, the candidates who can get on the ballot in all 50 states are probably the ones to watch, just like George Wallace.
0: You know this, but you go back to Teddy Roosevelt. He got twenty-seven percent of the vote when he was a third-party candidate. Ross Perot got nineteen percent back in nineteen ninety-two. George Wallace got thirteen percent. What do we? What does that mean about the race coming up in two thousand twenty-four about independence?
1: Well, I think what it means is while you know Democrats do not want to be on a debate stage, uh, and here they are going back to Chicago next year, and there's someone on the potentially on the ballot named Robert Kennedy. Well, they don't want to be on the debate, share a debate stage, you know, with a Robert Kennedy. And Republicans don't want to share with someone on some of their kind of, you know, who were kind of lower in the popularity right now in the polls. Even worse is to see one of them run as an independent and challenge you in November. Because our elections are, are you know, 68, for many years, people are always oh, one of the closest elections in US history. Well, they're all close these days. And a lot of times, since, certainly since 2000, and more more than once, the, the winner of the Electoral College lost the popular vote. So these days, you don't need 12% or 19% to make a difference in the outcome. You need 3% or 5%. Uh, and so I think Wallace, at one point polled as high as 23 percent he's really nipping it humphrey's heels in 1968 but as as often happens you have those late switchers in the few weeks before november that they vote people kind of sober up and they get serious and say okay i'm less emotional who am i really going to vote for and ultimately i think eight out of ten uh Swit who that humphrey that, that wallace lost were kind of traditional FDR Democrats and went back to Humphrey ultimately. So now you can see some strange things going on in the polls. We've got a lot of time until November next year.
0: As you know, you write a lot about the bombing halt. Is there going to be a bombing halt over Vietnam? But first, before I ask you about that, here is a some audio from the tapes, LBJ and Nixon talking about Vietnam, November the 8th, 1968.
2: I think this, these people are proceeding on the assumption that folks close to you tell them to do nothing till January the 20th. I think they think that they've been, they've been quoting you indirectly, that the thing they ought to do is to just not show up at any conference and wait until you come into office right now they started that and that's bad they're killing americans every day i have that uh, documented uh there's not any question but what that's happening now i said to you uh, in that last uh, talk that i don't believe you know it or you're responsible for it and I said, you know, when I talked to all three of you at that time, but I said we have problems. Uh, I looked over that transcript the other night. We have problems. I think we can work them out. I believe Chu will ultimately come, but there are problems. Now they're problems because these people are telling them that.
0: Now he's talking to Richard Nixon after the election, but you write about the whole the whole Vietnam issue all through the '68 election. How does how does this all relate?
1: Well, you know, this this conversation provides a sort of snapshot, which clearly this is Johnson. You know, he might be in his final months of office, uh, but he's still the president. And Nixon and everybody else better accept that. Johnson, I think, was still hoping for um, either for some kind of a peace agreement or some kind of a breakthrough in the talks, uh, even if it all it was was symbolic that would leave his successor in a better position. I think Johnson, Desperately wanted to be seen as a peacemaker in, in history. He understood Vietnam was the part of his legacy that was weaker as compared to the Great Society and domestic policy and civil rights. And so I think, you know, Vietnam throughout that 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 year, Johnson is reacting to events in Vietnam just as many Americans are, starting with Tet Offensive in the beginning of the year, this coordinated, simultaneous attack on Americans and on our allies. In South Vietnam at a time when Americans are being told the war had been going better. And all of a sudden it didn't seem like it. Johnson's withdrawal from the race in March. Peace talks begin in May. Um, people, Vietnam consistently, you know, on their minds as they go to the polls. Both candidates, Humphrey and Nixon pledging to get out of Vietnam in different ways, according to different timetables. But sort of Vietnam kind of never goes away. It's sort of there in the background, you know, throughout the year.
0: Why was uh, LBJ so suspicious of uh, Hubert Humphrey?
1: Well,
0: I, well, on, I, Viet- I think on Vietnam,
1: a, a, a number of reasons. I, th- I think it probably goes back to uh, uh, the f- the first full month that Humphrey was uh, vice president uh, in, in February of 65. Uh, Humphrey had 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 made uh, a mistake. He didn't realize it at the time but he had offered candid advice during a National Security Council meeting uh, that was critical of, uh, of of the administration's Vietnam policy. Uh, Vietnam at the time was, was not in a good situation, very politically unstable. Um, the first Marines were about to go to Da Nang uh, on the beaches of Da Nang the next month in March, and then the bigger escalations the summer of 65. And so I think Johnson suspected Humphrey uh, coming from more of the left-wing, the liberal side of the party, Johnson was more kind of a centrist, center-right, I would argue, within the Democratic tradition. And, and, and by early 66, Senator Eugene McCarthy and others were really starting to call uh, Vietnam a mistake. And Humphrey seemed sympathetic to that. And I think Johnson... I think Johnson took a lot of that criticism personally. It wasn't intended personally, but it's how Johnson came to believe that it's a question that, that Humphrey's loyalty.
0: This is from your book. Humphrey did not know that the text of his Salt Lake City speech remained in the studio teleprompter after the taping. Tom Corlogus, a staffer for Senator Wallace Bennett, discovered it while working on Bennett's campaign taping later that day. What's this about?
1: this is a fun story uh so almost all books look at one date when the humphrey campaign turned around in 68 and that's september 30th this taped speech uh that uh he he's just gently separated himself taking a more liberal position uh on vietnam uh and and so i i was at an event and i had tom Korologis and and richard allen in the same room and they were the participants together in this event It turns out that Coragalogus, they're using the same studio to tape for Wallace Bennett, finds a copy of of Humphrey's speech before it airs later that day, tips off his friend Richard Allen, who at the time uh, was a foreign policy advisor for the Nixon campaign. Nixon then calls, I think Nixon calls John, Nixon's in Detroit, he calls Johnson, says, what do you know about this speech where your vice president is separating himself on Vietnam? I don't think Johnson knew at all. He was tipped off by Richard Nixon. Johnson gets a copy from the DNC and is furious at Humphrey for about two weeks after the speech takes place. Uh, So I think it was a key moment when I think when 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 a lot of the kind of liberal Democratic voters who had been for McCarthy, they had been for uh, for Bobby Kennedy. And they hoped at Chicago, it might be a McGovern or an, a Ted Kennedy, who might at the last the 11th hour take the nomination, really sat on their hands and weren't enthusiastic about Humphrey. This was the day when Humphrey tried to rally those faithful, uh, September 30th, the Salt Lake City speech. And it was Nixon who discovered it in advance and tipped off Lyndon Johnson. So if he wasn't suspicious already of his vice president, he certainly was by that
0: why do your students at chapman university take your courses
1: <laughs> well well i i don't know maybe they come to believe it's a mistake i um yeah look i'm i'm, I'm, a, I'm an advocate for uh, the liberal arts and, and for history and there's been so much emphasis on the stem fields in the last 20 years now science technology engineering and math which are all great skills i was actually better in math as a kid than, than history or political science but i think you know a lot of people come up to me and they say oh you teach history i i I was never very good at history because i couldn't memorize people places and dates and i say history is a lot more than that history is sort of a debate that never is never really over we're constantly reassessing what we thought we knew uh about history because new evidence comes to light all the time that that challenges our preconceived ideas to me what history really is about is not a static set of events, people or places. It's about who we are as people and how we got here and perhaps a suggestion of where we might be going.
0: When do you see the students get really interested in what you're teaching them?
1: When they have their hands in the sources. Uh, so when I teach this White House tapes class, When I'm talking to them, I can sit here and I can tell you exactly how RCA created this continuous film system for FDR as he was going into the political campaign in 1940. He was concerned about Wilkie and being misquoted in the press. But there's nothing like turning the recording on and letting him hear it. You have a kind of voyeuristic feeling, a kind of fly on the wall of the Oval Office, that you're hearing something uh, that, that not a lot of people have heard. It's often different than what's in the history books. And it allows young people, it empowers them to sort of bypass the traditional textbook and come to their own conclusions. How do you test them? Uh, well, it's, it's getting harder with AI. Um, I in, in, in March, uh, I, I received, I think, my first essay. I said, this seems to me like it might have been AI generated. And this is in March, the middle of the spring semester. When I created the syllabus in January, I had no idea I needed an AI policy for my classes. And universities now are quickly figuring this out over the summer, because this is the first academic year that this is an issue. So uh, how I've tested them in the past is, to, you know, historians write essays. We communicate ideas through writing based on the interpretation of evidence that put in together that puzzle. Uh, but this is getting harder with AI to the point where at some point I become a troglodyte and I go back to the blue book exams that are handwritten because at least then there's you can, you can verify the authenticity of what's being submitted.
0: Did you challenge the student that you thought used AI?
1: I gave them a chance to explain themselves because I wasn't sure. Uh, I'm familiar enough with kind of AI and history. You can, you can, when you know a subject, well, I'll give you an example. You know, if I were being asked to guest edit an academic journal in chemistry or some subject that I do do not know anything beyond, you know, Chem 100 as a freshman in college, I I could make it look professional. I could make it look, you know, I could lay out the argument, I could have the sources, I could have the narrative, but someone who understands that field would figure out that I'm a fraud and I don't really know the right sources. And that's kind of the problem with AI. I gave the student a chance to explain themselves, and I I think the student was honest in the sense that these days, there's so many test prep websites and things, essay prep websites, and what she told me was she had put a paragraph or a passage uh, you know, these, these, these present themselves as like grammar checks. You can put a paragraph in a text box and it'll make suggestions. What's well, making suggestions based on AI-generated content, and so it's doing more than just grammar check or spell check. It's suggesting content. And so I think that's the challenge for a college-age student now, is understanding so much of this is being AI-generated, and it might not have a bug on the website that indicates that,
0: uh, but you've got to be aware. Why did you have the title of your book uh, be The Year That Broke Politics?
1: Well, this was a tough one to come up with a title. Uh, we went back and forth with a lot of different titles. Uh, and certainly it's not the only year you know that broke politics. People might say that perhaps today about politics. But I think it, it sort of, I, I didn't want to be, the title to be focused on a particular candidate. It needed to be, there, there, there's not really a starring actor. There's a lot of co-stars And so I think we wanted to be focused on kind of the theme, on the era, on the decade, on the year, and not so much on a particular figure, because they all share the spotlight at different times. And when they came up with that and that kind of silhouette image on the cover, uh, which the LBJ Library uses in one of their exhibits, and the Nixon Library, I'm gratified to know, uses a sort of slightly different but a similar photo, uh, we thought, you know, that's it. I can't do any better than that.
0: You have a chapter. Titled "Messenger," who's that?
1: A, the, a figure uh, who who uh, is probably the most important figure in this election, who's not on the ballot, and that's Reverend Billy Graham. Uh, and 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 you know, I wish I could say I, I knew this going into it, uh, but two 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 months after Mondale's charge uh, to figure out what was LBJ's state of mind and probe the Johnson Humphrey Nixon relationship. Two months after that, in February of 2018, uh, the Reverend Billy Graham dies at age 99. And that triggered the beginning of a process which continues to this day the opening of his 70 years of personal papers at the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte. And the Grahams allowed me to use uh, a portion of his diary that he called his VIP notebooks. And because he lived so long, it's 50-some volumes that document verbatim contact with presidents, first families, and top staff that begins with Harry Truman in 1950, goes all the way to Barack Obama in 2014. And there's content of of conversations with president that, that as far as I can tell, not in the National Archives, not in any presidential library, and in specific to 68, the part that I was allowed to see and use. It's called Messenger the chapter because Billy Graham operates as a messenger back and forth. Johnson, Nixon, Humphrey, Wallace, former President Eisenhower, California Governor Ronald Reagan, and and this messages back and forth are what helped me to conclude that Johnson eventually came to see Nixon as a successor for better successor for LBJ's own legacy. And the peak of this sort of message activity, messenger activity, is just after Labor Day, when Johnson carries a message, uh, Graham carries a message from Nixon to Johnson in the Oval Office, just after Labor Day in 68, uh, that uh, Nixon makes a multi-point promise to LBJ as president that he would never criticize Johnson by name, he would give Johnson credit for Vietnam when it's all over, he would, Nixon would consult with Johnson in retirement and would do everything Nixon could do to give Johnson a good place in history, and I thought this is an incredible act of political marksmanship. What if it leaked out? You know, I'm not sure we keep secrets like that anymore, but I think it's exactly what Johnson wanted to hear at a time when many in his own party were criticizing him.
0: What about the um, this sentence from your book? Graham told Nixon that he believed presidents were divinely chosen. And each was called to serve. Uh, I don't know. I, I want to be careful. I don't want to go too far with this. But uh, if if you apply that to every president uh, in my lifetime, I wonder uh, how that stands up
1: uh well it's, it's no surprise graham was a kind of uh, already a very well established you know leader of the evangelical community at that time reaching kind of the peak of his own profession as johnson humphrey and nixon were reaching the peak of theirs and i think all presidents are accustomed to governing during times of crisis it might be economic political military cultural social billy graham in the 1960s uh looking at assassinations john f kennedy robert kennedy dr martin luther king uh the world's uh the the country's longest war at that point in vietnam all the upheaval culturally socially on our campuses the draft tearing the country graham's diary makes it clear uh whether there might have he wondered whether there might have been another kind of crisis a spiritual crisis of sorts in the country and so I think that's partly why Graham was able to play this role of messenger on both sides of the political aisle. Because if you told Graham something, typically it didn't leak. He only passed messages from Johnson to Nixon that he was authorized to pass specifically, at least as his diary says. And so I think that this is kind of the role that I think only it has been called the President's Club. That while they're different publicly, Democrat, Republican, different policies, approaches to governing, that only when you've sat in that chair, you know, in what's been called the nation's loneliest job, do you come to appreciate others who've sat in that
0: chair and you realize despite public differences, you come to need each other. As you know, one of the things that Billy Graham said was yeah, I knew I know he didn't think it was going to ever leak, but it did. It was discovered by Jim Warren in 2002 from the tapes. I know you know this. They're going to run it. This is a conversation between Richard Nixon and Billy Graham about Jews. They are energized by a supernatural power called the devil.
2: This is what the Bible teaches. Whether you believe it or don't believe it, this is the biblical teaching. This is what I believe, and I believe that you have. The, they have a. They have a strange brilliance about. It. Oh, they have uh, they have a, uh, they're smart, and they, and, and they are energized, in my judgment, by supernatural power. Also, oh, they do something else, but they're not really smart. <laughs> and you see, and uh, of course, Hitler didn't, uh, they had a stranglehold on Germany, on the banking of Germany, on everything in Germany, and the media, they had the whole thing, you see, and if he went about it wrong, but, but this stranglehold has got to be broken, or this country is going to go down the drain. Sure.
0: Yes, sir. Talking.
2: I such a sign, we might be able to do something.
0: Billy Graham suggesting the stranglehold Jews have in this country is going to not going to be work out too well. What do you think of this?
1: Well, and, and certainly, uh, you know, the, the shelf life on those remarks is not very good, and he came to regret those comments later. You know, I, I once wrote him uh, when he was alive, and I asked him, not about this specific conversation, because I figured that's not something he wants to talk about, but I asked him about the Nixon tapes. And he wrote me a letter back. His eyesight had been failing at the time. He had someone else to his correspondence, Stephanie Wills, his longtime personal assistant. And he said something to me like, um, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what's on all those tapes, but something like what God does. And that's good enough for me. I don't need to comment. And so I take from that, um, you know, Nixon's often, you know, this is often used, we used it in our Nixon tapes book with Doug Brinkley, as as evidence, you know, that Nixon was anti-Semitic, that they were discussing this. I have, I don't deny the existence of this conversation, but I take a more, you know, I think Nixon was much more of an equal opportunity hater. I mean, he criticizes Italians and conservatives and liberals, he considers like, at some point criticizes just about every category of person. And certainly Nixon had conservative Jews that he liked. Israeli Prime Minister Goldemeyer credits Nixon as saving the nation of Israel in 1973 during the Mideast War. Uh, so it, I, I try to take a more nuanced view, um, but certainly um, I think this this was a conversation. This, again, under a Johnson or a Kennedy taping system, manually operated, I'm not sure a conversation like that gets recorded, uh, but part of the reason Nixon had a manually operated system as he thought it was fair for history, warts and all.
0: So what do you think it would have been like if, from Truman to Obama, that the man they always called into the White House to give them advice was either a Jewish rabbi or a Catholic priest, compared to a Baptist minister?
2: Mm.
1: Well, that's a good question. And certainly uh, spiritual counselors, to use that term uh, since Graham's days and going forward, Uh, represent a much more diverse range of beliefs, philosophy, religion. Uh, But, you know, I think in that era, a a lot of those leaders were moderately conservative. Southern Truman, FDR had strong Southern roots. Uh, Eisenhower, uh, sort of born in Texas, sort of from Kansas. And I think that kind of Southern Baptist way uh, related to a lot of those presidents, in particular, because Graham was from a border state, being from uh, from South from North Carolina, that was really starting to come up for grabs politically. People forget in those blue red maps of Eisenhower and Nixon in fifty two fifty six, uh, Eisenhower and Nixon won Virginia twice. They won Louisiana in fifty six and began to claw back some of that traditional Democratic South, uh, it was starting to get politically really interesting as millions of voters were now coming into play that, that hadn't been in play. And so I think Graham, uh, because of who he was... Uh, and because of where he was from and what he represented. And, of course, we haven't even got into the growing evangelical movement. This is really where all that begins, their power as a voting block. Uh, I think for all of these reasons, uh, Graham was able to ingratiate himself very deeply on both sides of the aisle.
0: His son's been a big supporter of Donald Trump. Do you think Billy Graham would have been?
1: I I, there are parts of this diary that I have not been able to see and apparently in 2015 I think it was uh, Trump attended Billy Graham's 95th birthday and apparently they had a brief but warm conversation as far as I have seen Franklin Graham has said his father did support Trump but I will say his father had a different technique you know while he might um, say nice things about a political candidate he always claimed he was a lifelong Democrat I mean a southern Democrat um, he never offered endorsements. He would come pretty close. I mean, he would sometimes make clear who his preferred candidate was. But I, think, I think Billy Graham was, was surprisingly sophisticated about politics. And he knew how to walk a a, a line, sometimes a very fine line, between, you know, uh, uh, but, but I think ultimately his, his prize wasn't politics. It was his ministry. And in, in that line of work, you don't want to alienate, you know, any of your potential, you know, attendees at rallies, and many of whom are, you know, are across the political
0: spectrum. We're going to have to wrap it up, but I do want to ask you about a, a testimonial on your NixonTapes.org from George Herbert Walker Bush. And I assume you provided him... Uh, this information he says the quote is I'm pleased that you have found no record of his having made unpleasant comments about me uh, wh- wh- what was the story around that?
1: That came comes from a letter that he wrote me um, y- you know um, uh, I'm basically a blue collar lower middle class kid uh, from Ohio first generation college grad in my family and when I started to work on these tapes I did not realize I would start to hear from people presidents members of the cabinet, and they all wanted to know, what did I say on the tapes? What did the president say to me? And in this case, this was different. He wanted to know, what did Nixon say about me after I left the room? (laughs) And a lot's been written that Nixon criticized him, thought he was weak, kind of establishment, kind of a weakling. And so I I sent him a bunch of recordings, and I said, "A, a little bit, but he doesn't criticize you more than he criticizes anybody else. And he was really glad to hear that.
0: Our guest has been Luke Nictor, professor of history at Chapman University, author of a new book called The Year That Broke Politics, which was 1968, and also the gentleman that started the nixontapes.org, where you can find it online. Thank you very much, Professor Nictor.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Book
1: Notes Plus podcast please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. If you've been enjoying this podcast on Stitcher, please be aware that platform is ending operations at the end of August. But don't worry, you can still find this podcast and all of C-SPAN's podcasts on many other podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and the C-SPAN Now app.